Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, so this is Hebrews speaking to Jewish believers who now follow Christ, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is them an end of all dispute. Thus God, now think about this, God enters into the way man solves disputes. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, two things that cannot change, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having come a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Look up at the screen with me, and what you're going to see are some scrolling shots of the catacombs in Rome. Now, I've been there twice. Uh, it is a very moving experience, very impressive. Hundreds and hundreds of miles of underground, subterranean caverns where Christians would bury their dead. Now, the Romans believed in creation. They thought that at death, that the soul would go to the Elysian fields. That was their view of heaven. But Christians believed that when Jesus returned, that the soul and the body would be reunited. So they believed in burial. So these large underground caverns were built outside of the city. And sometimes Christians would even worship there at times of great persecution. Now, there are no remains left in the catacombs. All the bodies, all the bones are gone. But what has been left is a treasure trove of etchings and carvings and frescoes that tell us a lot about the early church. So one of the more popular ones, look at the screen again, is this fish. Fish was a symbol of early Christians. They would put it on doorposts and businesses so people knew they were Christians. Obviously, Jesus' disciples, many of them were fishermen. He multiplied the loaves and fishes, so that kind of fits. And then the one we're going to talk about today is an anchor. Now, we see it all through the catacombs. The anchor was a literary device of not only the Greeks but the Romans uh, because they understood something about it. Uh, it was a nautical term that the people of the ancient world were very familiar with. For this reason, they feared the seas. They feared open water, and for good reason. Many of them had heard legends or myths about, you know, people going over the horizon and falling over or great sea monsters. Uh, many of them had lost loved ones who went out to sea. And so the sea to them was so much unlike dry land. It was ever-changing, unpredictable, and lacked a solid foundation. Sounds a lot like life to me, doesn't it? And so an anchor to anyone who would read this meant stability, safety, and open water, security. And so the writer of the Hebrews seizes on this, dips into his metaphor bag, and begins to share with us that, that there is a hope God has given us, and that's an anchor to our soul. And that hope is what we talked about last week, where we asked the question, are we once saved, always saved? If salvation is the gift of God, can it be taken away? Can it be lost? Can it be trampled upon? And it ended with these great verses where it says, Brethren, we have greater things concerning you. 
And we're admonished to, you know, as the ancient people, the great cloud of witnesses who through faith and patience obtain the promises, that we would hold on and cling to God, that he's become the anchor of our souls. So the writer of Hebrews here in the text that I just read tells us that Jesus is our anchor, that we can root ourselves in him, we can cling to him, that if we have, if we're anchored to Jesus, we have stability and peace in an ever-changing world and when we face deep waters, and we will. Now, before I get into all that, I want to say this. The soul needs an anchor. I want you to think about that. If you and I were just material, if we were just made of the common elements of the earth, then we should be happy with the necessary things of life, right? Food, water, shelter, sex, those kind of things. The animals seem real secure in that. Yet, for some reason, we are existential. We, we, human beings, we want to know where we came from. We want to know where we're going. We, we want life to have a purpose. We want to know where all this is going. The soul needs to be anchored somewhere. And that was designed by God. When God breathed into man and gave him the breath of life, it was designed that we would cling to someone or something. Now, there are many people who say, well, I don't need God. And they'll say, well, you know, I don't need an anchor. I don't need a crutch. And I'm going to disagree. I think every human being needs to be anchored to something. But why is it this way? Because life is more fragile than anybody's ever told us it was. The psalmist is brutally honest in Psalm 103. After all these verses where he talks about God is everlasting, he starts talking about man. And he said, man, as for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, he flourishes, right? You go out and buy those beautiful flowers, and you think your house is going to look like Longwood Gardens, and you plant it, it looks great for a couple days, and weeks later, everything's dying. Man comes forth, he invents, he creates, but at the end of the day, the wind passes over, and it's gone, and the place remembers it no more. We sing that song, we are like a flower, quickly fading place you realize this, or where it really kind of hits home, is at funerals. Now, I go to way more funerals than you guys, because I'm a minister. And Solomon said there's more to learn at the house of mourning than at the house of feasting. And when you're at a funeral, you realize the fragility of life, that God holds our very breath in his hands. Here's what troubles me about funerals. The lead up to the funeral is a tumult, it's grieving. Even when you get there, they're sobbing and and, and everybody's sad. And then guess what happens? You go to the lunch. And at the lunch, all the small talk starts. I'm watching the Cavaliers, Warriors, and what are you doing for vacation? And then the next day comes, and life moves on. And it doesn't stop for any one of us. And that's why Job said, you know, we were born of yesterday. Our life is a mere shadow. We're here one day. We're gone the next. So the Bible tells us to number our days. It tells us that life is much more fragile than we think, and therefore we need an anchor for the soul. And yet some people say we don't need an anchor. Now, when they say that, I don't think logically they figured that out. Because logically, if they say they don't need an anchor, it means they figured something else out, which I don't think they have. And yet if you look at life, if you look at the broad spectrum of life, People are clinging to something. Everyone has an anchor. They really do. Most people, 
maybe as high as 80%, find their security, they're anchored to money, right? Man, if I can just pile the dollars up, if my bank account can swell, if I can just get to a certain place with money, I'll be secure and set for the rest of my life. The Bible says money makes like wings and it flies away. There's not a lot of security in money. Uh, ask the people who Bernie Madoff ripped off or uh, many other Ponzi schemes or people that have blown money, right? Solomon, who was the king of Israel at one time, the wealthiest man of that time, Solomon was so wealthy that gold, the value of gold was like the rocks on the ground. Solomon said, he who loves silver will never be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. And he said, this is vanity. It drove him mad. It's almost like Solomon said, look, I have everything, and I wish it made me happy, but it doesn't. The rock group Kansas, in their song, Dust in the Wind, said, not one more minute can all your money buy. I was with Oscar Maru in Kenya, and we were driving around. And I would look in the, the bank advertising, and it would say 10% on passbook savings. I sign anyone up for that? 10%? So I turned to Pastor Oscar, I'm t saying, you tell me if I put my money in the bank, I'll get 10% interest every year? He said, yep. And I said, what's the downside? And he looked at me and he said, how about civil war? See? See, in America, we're inoculated from that unthinkable until a recession comes or a depression and the banks are going under see the whole thing's built on a house of cards john macarthur said one time that if everyone in america every corporation every government institution start telling the truth on monday morning the whole system would collapse the fragility of our system is built on sand it's fragile and yet here in america we're kind of inoculated from all that. Other people's anchor is relationships, strong family bonds, my wife, my children. It's all about family, and that's a beautiful thing. I presided over a wedding yesterday of a girl who was at our very first church service. She was 16 years old. And weddings astound me because there is this in, innate sense that we need to be hitched, right? That we need a soulmate, as they say. And uh, the reason why it, it moves me so much is because if we looked at the statistics of marriage and we saw all the possibilities, if we approached buying a car that way, we would never buy that particular car. Yet we keep getting married. Why? Because God designed the soul to be united. God creates the world and everything's good. And then one day he looks down and he says, something's not good that Adam was alone. One person said the key to life, this is a comedian, by the way. He said the key to life is to find someone you can live with and drag them to the end. That's not pastoral advice. I'm just letting you know I like comedy at times. Relationships will let you down. Even good ones. Every relationship will go awry at some point. Because someone will let you down. And uh, think about this. You'll let somebody down. Hey, I'll come over Friday. We'll have a great time. Until something comes along Wednesday a little better. Oh, I can't make it Friday. Sorry about that. We all know that relationships are strewn all over the place. 
Some people trust in their careers, and that rug can be pulled out really quick. Some people trust in the ingenuity of man. This one kills me. The brilliant Stephen Hawking, professor at Cambridge, and writes all these books, and he's an astrophysicist. Uh, he said that because a law like gravity exists, we understand now that the universe can and has created itself from nothing. Am I really supposed to believe that? Am I really supposed to trust in the mind of Stephen Hawking? And yet man has to anchor himself to something. He ha there, there's an anchor. You know, in a changing world, we want something to be true. We want something to be secure. Robbie Zacharias, in his first book, asked the question, can man live without God? The answer is no. Not if we're going to flourish. Not if we're going to live life the way it was meant to be lived. Not if we're going to know what life is all about. Not if we're going to live it to the fullest. The Bible tells us there's a God that we've always been looking for. And you know you've always been looking for him? Now, I'm going to confess something, and I might be out of my mind, but before I was a Christian, when, when I would hit difficult spots in life, I would talk to myself. And I would talk to anybody that was out there. That was the idea. And I think I was talking to God. And I would just get things off my chest, and I, and I would speak as though there were a God, though I had no idea who he was. The Bible says the God who we're looking for is stable, has given us great and precious promises, loves us unconditionally, is our refuge in a time of need, is a friend, companion, and lover. He'll never forsake us. His name is Yahweh, or another derivative, Jehovah, or another derivative, Jesus. It's the verb form of I am. God's name declares to us that he is becoming whatever we need. Isn't that beautiful? Whatever you need this morning, that's who God will become to each and every one of us. He's Jehovah Jireh, if you need provision. He's Jehovah Rahapha, your healer. And on and on the list goes. To me, at the top of the list, and the thing I love about God the most, comes out of Malachi 3.6, where God said, I am the Lord, I change not. And I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know why that's at the top of my list? Because my stepdad, who basically raised me, was an alcoholic. He was a hardworking man, and we got along. But when he would drink at night, he would promise us everything. He would send us to the best schools, buy us cars, you know, go to ball games. And the next morning, it was all forgotten. And isn't life like that? Your boss promises you something. College promises you something with a degree. Everybody's making promises in the world that they can't deliver on. Now the question is, if God is all these things, can he be trusted? That's always the question people are asking. Can I really trust God? Will he come through in the end for me? And so the writer of Hebrews gives us this wonderful text where he brings us back to Abraham. Now, if we're to imitate those who, who through faith and promise, uh, faith and patience, obtain the promises, uh, we might as well go back to Abraham. Abraham was the first man of faith. He was a pagan. And God comes to him, and he makes him a promise. He says, Abraham, Genesis 12, I will make you a great people. Your descendants will be like the stars in heaven, the sand on the seashore. I will make your name great. God said, I will, I will, I will. 
And then 25 long years go by. And Abraham has no heir. 25 years. God, what are you doing? What are you up to? He takes matters in his own hands. God, how's this going to be? Some of you have been waiting six months in your manic God. Six years. The wedding I presided over yesterday, the girl who was 16, was 39 yesterday. Every Sunday when I would walk from my office up here, I would see her teaching in Journeyland. I've gone on missions trips with her. Always a smile, always serving. She had to be mad at God. I was mad at God for her. I would get in my prayer closet and say, God, what are you doing? This, this, this girl is a fine Christian woman. There's single guys in this church. Are they out of their mind? Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham. And he does something only human beings do. He makes an oath with Abraham. He makes a promise. He cuts a covenant with Abraham. Makes a contract with him. He said, Abraham, take these animals, slice them in two. And this is the way you did a covenant back then. You would take animals, it was a blood covenant, you would slice them in two. And the two parties would walk through the animals and they would establish the ground rules of the covenant. Anybody know what we call that today? In a marriage at least? Vows, right? For better or worse, for richer or poorer, for death do us part. And God does something strange. He tells Abraham to do that, and he puts Abraham asleep. And while Abraham's asleep, God speaks forth the rules of the covenant. Now, here's where the covenant became very important. As two people made their covenant, what they were saying is, if I break these vows, if I don't abide by this covenant, may I be cut off or cut to pieces like these animals. God puts Abraham to sleep, and Abraham has no understanding. There's no way Abraham could understand that that's exactly what God would do. That God would enter the human story, and he would be cut off from the land of the living. That he himself, Isaiah said, would be stricken, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Like sheep going to their shearers, he went to his death. Like Daniel said, he would be cut off, only could speak of crucifixion, but not for himself. God, who did not spare his own son. He spared Abraham's son when he asked him to sacrifice Isaac. God, who did not spare his own son. How will he not freely give us all things? The writer of the Hebrews is urging us here that God can be trusted. He tells us that for men indeed swear by the greater, verse 15, and the oath of confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. But God, determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirms it by an oath that by two immutable things for which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. There's nothing God could swear by. He can't swear by the sun, the moon. He created all of them. So he swore by himself. God said, if I do not keep this covenant, I will cut myself off. And the beautiful thing here is, is that God can't lie. He can't lie because he invented truth. That gravity that Stephen Hawking loves, the reason it works is because it's true, because God made it that way. And he never deviates from it. Here's the question, why did God put Abraham to sleep? Because the covenant was unconditional. In other words, God was saying, Abraham, 
I'm going to stand for you and I'm going to stand for me. What God knew was that man would be unfaithful, that man would give up on God. But God was telling us, I'll never give up on man. I'll never give up on him, even if I have to become one of them. And so God makes a staggering promise to Abraham. By the way, he waits 25 years, and 4,000 years later, today, there's still 16 million Jews. And if you add up all the Jews who have ever lived, we're in the hundreds of millions. And then Romans says, Abraham's the father of all men that believe, and if you add everybody in, God has been pretty faithful, don't you think? God's kept his promise, don't you think? God can be trusted, don't you think? The writer's telling us here that we're all going to face deep waters. That in this life, you know, the water's sometimes going to be up to our neck. And that one of the things we can do, the lifeline that you and I have, is the promise of God. Now let me talk about this in a, for a few minutes. Because the promises of God come several ways, these lifelines. One way these lifelines come is through the Bible. That's why we tell everybody, coming to church isn't enough, listening to podcasts enough. You need to be a self-feeder. You need to read the Bible for yourself. Uh, this is why a lot of people have life verses. Because we need something to cling to. We need the precious promises of God. We need something to hold on to. I was walking in here this morning, and one of our servers down in children's ministry looked kind of down. I said, what's going on? She said, my husband might have cancer, and if y'all were going for an appointment tomorrow. I said, can you do me two favors? Number one, do not look on the internet. And number two, go home and read the Psalms. Because in there lie the promises of God. Another place that the promises may come is in worship. You know, we give a great place in our services to worship because God ministers to a lot of people that way. Pastor Shem led our staff meeting this past week, and he shared how great is thy faithfulness. It's something he sings all the time. All through the seasons of life, many times through the day, he'll just sing, great is thy faithfulness, because that's a promise he can cling to. Some people, through preaching, sometimes when people are preaching like I'm doing now, God will minister something to you, and there's a promise you can hold on to. And then sometimes God speaks in a whisper, right? We talked about this in Hebrews 1. God who spoke to the fathers through the prophets in the past times in these last days speaks to us through his son. God is a God who communicates. I read a great story this week in Christianity Today of a young man who was 17 years old. And uh, he really idolized and looked up to his cousin. And his cousin invited him to a marine bar, which I don't even know what that is. I can imagine what it is. Uh, 11 o'clock at night. And he knew he shouldn't go, but he idolized this guy, and so they went. And they got to this bar, and two hours in, the guy gets a few drinks under his belt, and he says, hey, I'm going to rob this joint in a couple hours. And he told them to go outside, and it was taking real long, and he went inside, and he found out this cousin of his had brutally murdered the owner. And the cousin said, go get all the cash, get all the money. And they got all the money, and they fled to Manhattan, New York City. And they lived in flop houses for a couple months and lived under the radar. Finally, this guy's conscience couldn't take it anymore. And he went back to where this happened. And he turned himself in thinking he would get 10 years and then be paroled. He got life in prison, no parole. He had a public defender. Two years in, 
He accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Wasn't jailhouse religion. Um, he just saw the love of the inmates, the love of the people who came into the worship services from various churches. And he began reading the Bible. And 25 years into his incarceration, um, he hired another lawyer and was sure he would get out. And when the trial came, they said, no, life in prison, no parole. And he went back to his bunk, and God whispered to him, I will release you, and you will do great things. And he clung to that promise. Out of the blue, another lawyer called him and said, there was a new Supreme Court decision. I really think we should retry the case. Five years later, he was let out. Today, he's a pastor in Dallas, and he's the chief chef at something like what we have the table here, and ministers to guys who have been incarcerated and released. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God good? It's unbelievable. The girl I mentioned yesterday, Nicole, guess what verse we read in her service, guess what verse was etched everywhere in the service? Philippians 4, 6-8. Be anxious for nothing, but with all prayer and supplication, make your request known to God that the peace of God may pass your understanding, your human intellect, and guard your heart and mind. And what she was saying is all those years while I was waiting, God had given me a peace because I knew that God would eventually, even if it took 25 years, would bring me the man of his choosing. Through faith and patience, we inherit the promises. Now, who are the promises to? Look at verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope before us. Who are those who have fled for refuge? You and me. So the writer dips into his metaphor bag again. This word refuge um, is the same word in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, for the cities of refuge. And you're saying, Pastor Bob, you're losing me. What are you talking about, cities of refuge? Cities of refuge are found in a place I'm sure most of you never go. Numbers 35, right? Here at Calvary, we go to Numbers 35 because we love the whole counsel of God's Word. And I love preaching out of Numbers. But in Numbers 35, it seems quite obscure. Listen to what Moses says. The Lord says to Moses, speak to the children of Israel, say to them, when you cross the Jordan to the land of Canaan, you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. Of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge, and you shall appoint three cities on the side of the Jordan, three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, and these will be cities of refuge. These six cities shall, shall be refuge for the children of Israel. Now, this is where the Bible is just fascinating and wonderful and beautiful. So when they came into the land, the land was apportioned to the tribes of Israel. The Levites had no land. They were not allowed to be landowners. They were priests. They ministered in the temple. They were given 48 cities to live in. And then God said there's going to be six cities of refuge. Now, these cities of refuge uh, were important in the ancient world, and still today in places like Afghanistan and some Middle Eastern countries, there really is no justice system, no police force, no jails, no judges. 
it's kind of like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? So let's say you went out one day and you're chopping a tree down and you missed and the ax flew off and uh, kind of hit your neighbor in the head and killed him, right? Well, you couldn't call 911, you couldn't get an attorney. What you would do is you would call a meeting of all your relatives who lived all through the village and you would select one, probably someone who had Charles Bronson's mentality, if you can remember that, and uh, he would become the avenger of blood. He would spend the rest of his life hunting down the person who killed your relative, and he would actually go and kill that person. That's the way justice was meted out. Now God said, here's what we're going to do. Things are going to happen by accident, and so there's going to be six cities of refuge. These are places where if there's an avenger of blood and he's chasing you, you could flee there and he can't get there. You're untouched. Remember playing kick the can or um, any of those hide and seek games? Remember home base? If you touched home base, no one could get you. That's kind of what it was. These six cities, listen, genius. They were accessible to everyone in Israel on a half a day journey. There were signposts that would always point you there. They were clearly marked. And in there, you would get a fair trial. It was a safe place for you to get a reprieve, get your strength back, get your wits about you, and really appeal to the people of that community. So what's the metaphor about for you and me? Who needs a city of refuge today? Depressed people, weary people, fearful people, Grieving people, worried people, disappointed people, lonely people, heartbroken people, people who've been unfairly abused. Psalm 9-9 says that the Lord will be a refuge in times of trouble. That woman whose husband has jaw cancer needs a city of refuge. Someone whose marriage is falling apart needs a city of refuge. Everybody in this room needs a city of refuge. We need somewhere to go when life doesn't make sense. Sometimes people can't help us. Sometimes the greatest counselors can't help us. Sometimes you've got to pull over to the side of the road and just talk to God. And you've got to cling to his garment like that woman who wouldn't let him go. Because God designed the soul that way. He designed us for communion. He wants to cover us. He wants us to be in the shadow of his wings. Psalm 91.4 said, He, God, shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. That's the God you're looking for. It's not the God of religion or religiosity. That's the God that we're looking for. And it says, we who have fled for refuge, we have this promise that God is faithful and that it is the anchor to our souls. It's what we're moored in and we're, we're, we're tied to. It's what's keeping us standing even in cheap and deep water. Now this whole thing gets buttoned up at the end. And hopefully you didn't miss it in verse 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Sure and steadfast that enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a greater priest than Melchizedek. The descendants of Aaron, 
are the ones who would go into the holy place. You dare not follow them because you would die. In fact, there was a chance they would die. That's why they put bells on the hems of their garments. But now it says that Jesus has gone behind the veil. He's gone in the holy place. The veil actually was ripped top to bottom. He's become our great high priest, but he's a forerunner. What does that mean? It means he's the first. In other words, he's the first to go inside the veil, which means we all get to follow. Isn't that beautiful? So in other words, if something happens to me this week, I don't have to go find a church. I just close my eyes wherever I am and I just talk to God. There's no pastor, priest, there's nothing, there's no mediator is the idea. He's greater than Melchizedek. We'll get into that next week. It's kind of weird. You know, you're not familiar with this. We live in a very fragile world, very fragile existence. And we all face deep waters. Some of us are in boiling water this morning. And there is a God who wants to get elbow deep, not only in our suffering, but our joy and, and, and all that we do and all that we feel and all that we think. Peter, when everyone had left Jesus, when he said, you must eat my body and drink my blood, Jesus said, are you leaving too? And he said, Lord, no one else has the words of eternal life. Isn't it funny nothing else meant anything to Peter? Which surprises me because today we have doctrines that God's going to give you a big shiny Cadillac and big mansion. Funny how Peter wasn't interested in any of that. He wasn't interested in his best life now or any of these things that everybody writes about. This lower middle class fisherman, the only thing he cared about is, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. That's the anchor, the living Word of God that will outlast anything on this earth. It's living, it's powerful, and God said he would put his Word higher than his name. It's our sustenance, it's our manna, and every great and precious promise, God is faithful.